If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 25 and 26 of Emily of New Moon by L. M. Montgomery. In the last chapter, Emily had accidentally broken a priest family heirloom. In tonight's story, she finds out a little bit more about her friend Isla's family. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 25 She Couldn't Have Done It Great Aunt Nancy and Caroline Priest were wont to colour their grey days with the remembered crimsons of old, long past delights and merry-makings. But they went further than this and talked over any number of old family histories before Emily with a total disregard of her youth. Loves, births, deaths, scandals, tragedies, anything that came into their old heads. Nor did they spare details. Aunt Nancy reveled in details. She forgot nothing and sins and weaknesses that death had covered and time shown mercy to were ruthlessly dragged out and dissected by this ghoulish lady. Emily was not quite certain whether she really liked it or not. It was fascinating. It fed some dramatic hunger in her, but it made her feel unhappy somehow as if something very ugly were concealed in the darkness of the pit they opened before her innocent eyes. As Aunt Laura had said, her youth protected her to some extent, 
but it could not save her from a dreadful understanding of the pitiful story of Isla's mother on the afternoon when it seemed good to Aunt Nancy to resurrect that tale of anguish and shame. Emily was curled up on the sofa in the back parlour, reading the Scottish Chiefs because it was a breathlessly hot July afternoon, too hot to haunt the bay shore. Emily was feeling very happy. The wind woman was ruffling over the big maple grove behind the grange, turning the leaves until every tree seemed to be covered with strange, pale, silvery blossoms. Fragrances drifted in from the garden. The world was lovely. She had had a letter from Aunt Laura saying that one of Saucy Sal's kittens had been saved for her. Emily had felt when Mike too died that she would never want another cat, but now she found she did. Everything suited her very well. She was so happy that she should have sacrificed her dearest possession to the jealous gods if she had known anything about the old pagan belief. Aunt Nancy was tired of playing solitaire. She pushed the cards away and took up her knitting. Emily, she said, has your Aunt Laura any notion of marrying Dr. Burnley? Emily recalled thus abruptly from the field of Bannockburn, looked bored. Blairwater gossip had often asked or hinted this question, and now it met her in the priest pond. No, I'm sure she hasn't, she said. Why, Aunt Nancy? Dr. Burnley hates women. Aunt Nancy chuckled. Thought perhaps he'd got over that. It's eleven years now since his wife ran away. Few men hold to one idea for anything like eleven years. But Alan Burnley was always stubborn in anything, love or hate. He still loves his wife, and that is why he hates her memory and all other women. I never heard the rights of that story, said Caroline. Who was his wife? Beatrice Mitchell, one of the Shrewsbury Mitchells. She was only eighteen when Alan married her. He was thirty-five. Emily, never you fall enough to marry a man much older than yourself. Emily said nothing. The Scottish chiefs was forgotten. Her fingertips were growing cold as they always did in excitement. Her eyes turned black. She felt that she was on the verge of solving the mystery that had so long worried and puzzled her. She was desperately afraid that Aunt Nancy would branch off to something else. I've heard she was a great beauty, said Caroline. Aunt Nancy sniffed. Depends on your taste in style. Oh, she was pretty. One of your golden-haired dolls. 
she had a little birthmark over her left eyebrow, just like a tiny red heart. I never could see anything but the mark when I looked at her, but her flatterers told her it was a beauty spot. The Ace of Hearts, they called her. Alan was mad about her. She had been a flirt before her marriage, but I will say, for justice among women is a rare thing. Caroline, you, for instance, are an unjust old hag. That she didn't flirt after marrying, openly at least. She was a sly puss, always laughing and singing and dancing. No wife for Alan Burnley, if you ask me. And he could have had Laura Murray. But between a fool and a sensible woman, did a man ever hesitate? The fool wins every time, Caroline. That's why you never got a husband. You were too sensible. I got mine pretending to be a fool. Emily, you remember that. You have brains. Hide them. Your ankles will do more for you than your brains ever will. Never mind Emily's ankles, said Caroline, keen on a scandal hunt. Go on about the Burnleys. Well, there was a cousin of hers, Leo Mitchell from Shrewsbury. You remember the Mitchells, don't you, Caroline? This Leo was a handsome fellow, a sea captain. He had been in love with Beatrice, so gossip ran. Some said Beatrice wanted him, but that her people made her marry Alan Burnley because he was a better match. Who knows? Gossip lies nine times and tells half-truth the tenth. She pretended to be in love with Alan anyhow, and he believed it. When Leo came home from a voyage and found Beatrice married, he took it coolly enough, but he was always over at Blairwater. Beatrice had plenty of excuses. Leo was her cousin. They had been brought up together. They were like brother and sister. She was so loathsome in Blairwater after living in a town. He had no home except with a brother. Alan took it all down. He was so infatuated with her, she could have made him believe anything. She and Leo were always together there when Alan was away, seeing his patients. They came the night Leo's vessel, the Lady of Winds, was to sail from Blair Harbour for South America. He went, and Lady Beatrice went with him. A queer little strangled sound came from Emily's corner. If Aunt Nancy or Caroline had looked at her, they would have seen that the child was white as the dead, with wide, horror-filled eyes. But they did not look. They knitted and gossiped on, enjoying themselves hugely. How did the doctor take it? asked Caroline. Take it? Take it? Nobody knows. Everybody knows what kind of man he's been ever since, though. He came home that night at dusk. The baby was asleep in its crib 
and the servant girl was watching it. She told Alan that Mrs. Burnley had gone to the harbour with her cousin for a goodbye walk and would be back home at ten. Alan waited for her easily enough. He never doubted her. But she didn't come back. She had never intended to come back. In the morning, the Lady of the Winds was gone, had sailed out of the harbour at the dark the night before. Beatrice had gone on board with him. That was all anybody knew. Alan Burnley said nothing, beyond forbidding her name ever to be mentioned in his hearing again. But the Lady of the Wind was lost with all on board, and that was the end of that elopement, and the end of Beatrice with her beauty, and her laughter, and her race of hearts. But not the end of the shame and wretchedness she brought to her home, said Caroline shrewdly. I'd tar and feather such a woman. Nonsense. If a man can't look after his wife, if he blinds his own eyes, mercy on us, child, what is the matter? For Emily was standing up, holding out her hands, as if pushing some loathsome thing from her. I don't believe it, she cried in a high, unnatural voice. I don't believe Isla's mother did that. She didn't. She couldn't have. Not Isla's mother. Catch her, Caroline, cried Aunt Nancy. But Emily, though the back parlour had whirled about her for a second, had recovered herself. Don't touch me, she cried passionately. Don't touch me. You... You liked hearing that story. She rushed out of the room. Aunt Nancy looked ashamed for a moment. For the first time, it occurred to her that her scandal-loving old tongue had done a black thing. Then she shrugged her shoulders. She can't go through life in cotton wool. Might as well learn spades are spades now as ever. I would have thought she'd have heard it all long ago, if Blairwater gossip is what it used to be. If she goes home and tells this, I'll have the indignant virgins of New Moon coming down on me in holy horror as a corrupter of youth. Caroline, don't you ask me to tell you any more family horrors before the niece, you scandalous old woman. At your age, I'm surprised at you. Aunt Nancy and Caroline returned to their knitting and their spicy reminiscences, and upstairs, in the pink room, Emily lay face downwards on her bed and cried for hours. It was so horrible. Isla's mother had run away and left her little baby. To Emily, that was the awful thing, the strange, cruel heartless thing that Isla's mother had done. She could not bring herself to believe it. There was some mistake somewhere. There was. Perhaps she was kidnapped, said Emily, trying desperately to explain it. She just went on board to look around. 
and he weighed anchor and carried her off. She couldn't have gone away of her own accord and left her dear little baby. The story haunted Emily in good earnest. She could think of nothing else for days. It took possession of her and worried and gnawed at her with an almost physical pain. She dreaded going back to New Moon and meeting Isla with this consciousness of a dark secret which she must hide from her. Isla knew nothing. She had asked Isla once where her mother was buried, and Isla had said, Oh, I don't know. At Shrewsbury, I guess. That's where all the Mitchells are buried. Emily wrung her slim hands together. She was as sensitive to ugliness and pain as she was to beauty and pleasure, and this was both hideous and agonizing. Yet she could not keep from thinking about it, day and night. Life at Wither Grange suddenly went stale. Aunt Nancy and Caroline all at once gave up talking family history, even harmless history, before her. And as it was painful repression for them, they did not encourage her hanging around. Emily began to feel that they were glad when she was out of hearing, so she kept away and spent most of her days wandering on the bay shore. She could not compose any poetry. She could not write in her Jimmy book. She could not even write to her father. Something seemed to hang between her and her old delights. There was a drop of poison in every cup. Even the filmy shadows of the grey bay, the charm of its fur-hung cliffs and its little purple islets that looked like outposts of fairyland, could not bring to her the old, fine, careless rapture. She was afraid she could never be happy again. So intense had her reaction been to her first revelation of the world's sin and sorrow. And under it all persisted the same incredulity. Isla's mother couldn't have done it. And the same helpless longing to prove she couldn't have done it. But how could it be proved? It couldn't. She had solved one mystery, but she had stumbled into a darker one. The reason why Beatrice Burnley had never come back on that summer twilight of long ago. For, all the evidence of the facts to the contrary notwithstanding, Emily persisted in her secret belief that whatever the reason was, it was not that she had gone away in the Lady of the Winds when that doomed ship sailed out into the starlit wonder of the gulf beyond Blair Harbour. Chapter 26 On the Bay Shore I wonder, thought Emily, how much longer I have to live. 
She had prowled that evening further down the bay shore than she had ever gone before. It was a warm, windy evening. The air was resinous and sweet, the bay a misty turquoise. That part of the shore whereon she found herself seemed as lonely and virgin as if no human foot had ever trodden it, save for a tiny, tricksy path, slender as red thread and bordered by great, green, velvety sheets of moss that wound in and out of the big firs and scrub spruces. The banks grew steeper and rockier as she went on, and finally the little path vanished altogether in a plot of bracken. Emily was just turning to go back when she caught sight of a magnificent spray of farewell summer growing far out on the edge of the bank. She must get it. She had never seen farewell summers of so dark and rich a purple. She stepped out to reach them. The treacherous mossy soil gave way under her feet and slid down the steep slope. Emily made a frantic attempt to scramble back, but the harder she tried, the faster went the landslide, carrying her with it. In a moment, it would pass the slope and go over the brink of the rocks, straight to the boulder-strewn shore thirty feet below. Emily had one dreadful moment of terror and despair, and then she found that the clump of mossy earth which had broken away had held on a narrow edge of rock, half hanging over it, and she was lying on the clump. It seemed to her that the slightest movement of her part would send it over, straight to the cool boulders underneath. She lay very still, trying to think, trying not to be afraid. She was far, far away from any house. Nobody could hear her if she screamed, and she did not even dare to scream, lest the motion of her body dislodged the fragment on which she lay. How long could she lie there motionless? Night was coming on. Aunt Nancy would grow anxious when the dark fell and would send Caroline to look for her. But Caroline would never find her here. Nobody would ever think of looking for her here, so far away from the Grange, in the spruce barrens of the lower bay. To lie there alone all night, to fancy the earth was slipping over, waiting for help that would never come. Emily could hardly restrain a shudder that might have been ruinous. She had faced death once before, or thought she had, on the night when Lofty John had told her she had eaten a poisoned apple, but this was even harder. To die here, all alone, far away from home. They might never know what had become of her, never find her. The crows or the gulls would pick out her eyes. She dramatized the thing so vividly that she almost screamed with horror of it. She would just disappear from the world 
as Isla's mother had disappeared. What had become of Isla's mother? Even in her own desperate plight, Emily asked herself that question. And she would never see dear New Moon again, and Teddy, and the dairy, and the Tansy Patch, and Lofty John's Bush, and the mossy old sundial, and her precious little heap of manuscripts on the sofa shelf in the garret. I must be very brave and patient, she thought. My only chance is to lie still, and I can pray in my mind. I'm sure God can hear thoughts as well as words. It is nice to think he can hear me, if nobody else can. Oh God, Father's God, please work a miracle and save my life, because I don't think I'm fit to die yet. Excuse my not being on my knees, you can see I can't move, and if I die, please don't let Aunt Elizabeth find my letter bills, ever. Please let Aunt Laura find them, and please don't let Caroline move out the wardrobe when she house cleans, because then she would find the Jimmy book and read what I wrote about her. Please forgive all my sins, especially not being grateful enough and cutting a bang, and please don't let Father be very far away. Amen. Then, characteristically, she thought of postscript. And oh, please let somebody find out that Isla's mother didn't do that. She lay very still. The light on the water began to turn warm gold and rose. A great pine on a bluff in front of her overflowed in a crest of dark boughs against the amber splendid behind it, a part of the beauty of the beautiful world that was slipping away from her. The chill of the evening gulf breeze began to creep over her. Once a bit of earth broke off at her side and went down, Emily heard the thud of the little pebbles in it on the boulders below. The portion upon which one of her legs lay was quite loose and pendant also. She knew it might break off too, at any moment. It would be very dreadful to be there when it got dark. She could see the big spray of farewell summer that had lured her to her doom, waving unplucked above her, wonderfully purple and lovely. Then, beside it, she saw a man's face looking down at her. She heard him say, My God, softly to himself. She saw that he was slight and that one shoulder was a trifle higher than the other. This must be Dean Priest, Jarback Priest. Emily dared not call to him. She lay still, and her great grey-purple eyes said, Save me. How can I help you? said Dean Priest hoarsely, as if to himself. I cannot reach you, and it looks as if the slightest touch or jar would send the broken earth over the brink. I must go for a rope, and to leave you here alone like this. Can you wait, child? Yes, 
breathed Emily. She smiled at him to encourage him. The little soft smile that began at the corners of her mouth and spread over her face. Dean Priest never forgot that smile and the steadfast child's eyes looking out through it from the little face that seemed so perilously near the brink. I'll be as quick as I can, he said. I can't go very fast. I'm a bit lame, you see. But don't be frightened. I'll save you. I'll leave my dog to keep you company. Here, Tweed. He whistled, and a great tawny gold dog came in sight. Sit right there, Tweed, till I come back. Don't stir a paw. Don't wag a tail. Talk to her only with your eyes. Tweed sat down obediently, and Dean Priest disappeared. Emily lay there and dramatized the whole incident for her Jimmy book. She was a little frightened still, but not too frightened to see herself writing it all out the next day. It would be quite a thrilling bit. She liked to know that the big dog was there. She was not so learned in the lore of dogs as in the lore of cats, but he looked very human and trusting, watching her with great kindly eyes. A grey kitten was an adorable thing. A grey kitten would not have sat there and encouraged her. I believe, thought Emily, that a dog is better than a cat when you're in trouble. It was half an hour before Dean Priest returned. Thank God you haven't gone over, he muttered. I hadn't to go as far as I feared. I found a rope in an empty boat up shore and took it. And now, if I drop the rope down to you, are you strong enough to hold it while the earth goes and then hang on while I pull you up? I'll try, said Emily. Dean Priest knotted a loop at the end and slid it down to her. Then he wound the rope around the trunk of a heavy fur. Now, he said. Emily said inwardly, Dear God, please, and caught the swaying loop. The next moment, the full weight of her body swung from it, for at her first movement, the broken soil beneath her slipped down, slipped over. Dean Priest sickened and shivered. Could she cling to the rope while he drew her up? Then he saw she had got a little knee hold on the narrow shelf. Carefully, he drew up the rope. Emily, full of pluck, helped him by digging her toes into the crumbling bank. In a moment, she was within his reach. He grasped her arm and pulled her up beside him into safety. As he lifted her past the farewell summer, Emily reached out her hand and broke off the spray. I've got it anyhow, she said jubilantly. Then she remembered her manners. I'm much obliged to you. You saved my life. And, and, 
I think I'll sit down a moment. My legs feel funny and trembly. Emily sat down, all at once more shaky than she had been through all the danger. Dean Priest leaned against the gnarled old fur. He seemed trembly too. He wiped his forehead with his handkerchief. Emily looked curiously at him. She had learned a good deal about him from Aunt Nancy's casual remarks. Not always good-natured remarks, for Aunt Nancy did not wholly like him, it seemed. She always called him Jarback, rather contemptuously, while Caroline scrupulously called him Dean. Emily knew he had been to college, that he was 36 years old, which to Emily seemed a venerable age and well off, that he had a malformed shoulder and limped slightly, that he cared for nothing save books nor ever had, that he lived with an older brother and travelled a great deal, and that the whole priest clan stood somewhat in awe of his ironic tongue. Aunt Nancy had called him a cynic. Emily did not know what a cynic was, but it sounded interesting. She looked him over carefully and saw that he had delicate, pale features and tawny brown hair. His lips were thin and sensitive, with a whimsical curve. She liked his mouth. Had she been older, she would have known why, because it connoted strength and tenderness and humour. In spite of his twisted shoulder, there was about him a certain aloof dignity of presence which was characteristic of many of the priests, and which was often mistaken for pride. The green priest eyes that were peering and uncanny in Caroline's face and impudent in Jim Priest's were remarkably dreamy and attractive in his. Well, do you think me handsome? he said, sitting down on another stone and smiling at her. His voice was beautiful, musical and caressing. Emily blushed. She knew staring was not etiquette, and she did not think him at all handsome, so she was very thankful that he did not press his question, but asked another. Do you know who your knightly rescuer is? I think you must be Jar... Mr. Dean Priest. Emily flushed again with vexation. She had come so near to making another terrible hole in her manners. Yes, Jarback Priest. You needn't mind the nickname. I've heard it often enough. It's a priest idea of humour. He laughed rather unpleasantly. The reason for it is obvious enough, isn't it? I've never got anything else at school. How came you to slide over that cliff? I wanted this, said Emily, waving her farewell summer. And you have it. Do you always get what you go after, even with death slipping a thin wedge between? I think you're born lucky. I see the signs. If that big ace delured you into danger, it saved you as well, for it was through stepping over to investigate it that I saw you. Its size and colour caught my eye, 
Otherwise, I should have gone on. And you, what would have become of you? Whom do you belong to, that you are let risk of your life on these dangerous banks? What is your name, if you have a name? I begin to doubt you do. I see you have pointed ears. Have I been tricked into meddling with fairies? And will I discover presently that twenty years have passed, and that I am an old man, long since lost to the living world, with nothing but the skeleton of my dog for company? I am Emily Birdstar of New Moon, said Emily, rather coldly. She was beginning to be sensitive about her ears. Father Cassidy had remarked on them, and now Jarback Priest. Was there really something uncanny about them? And yet, there was a flavor about the said Jarback that she liked, liked decidedly. Emily never was long in doubt about anyone she met. In a few minutes, she always knew whether she liked, disliked, or was indifferent to them. She had a queer feeling that she'd known Jack Priest for years, perhaps because it had seemed so long when she was lying on that crumbling earth waiting for him to return. He was not handsome, but she liked that lean, clever face of his, with its magnetic green eyes. So you're the young lady visitor at the Grange, said Dean Priest in some astonishment. Then my dear Aunt Nancy should look after you better. My very dear Aunt Nancy. You don't like Aunt Nancy, I see, said Emily coolly. What is the use of liking a lady who won't like me? You have probably discovered by this time that my lady aunt detests me. Oh, I don't think it's as bad as that, said Emily. She must have some good opinion about you. She says you're the only priest who will ever go to heaven. She doesn't mean that as a compliment, whatever you and your innocence believe it to be. And you are Douglas Starr's daughter. I knew your father. We were boys together at Queen's Academy. We drifted apart after we left it. He went into journalism, I to McGill. But he was the only friend I had at school. The only boy who would bother himself about Jarback Priest, who was lame and hunched back and couldn't play football or hockey. Emily Bird Star. Star should be your first name. You look like a star. You have a radiant sort of personality shining through you. Your proper habitat should be the evening sky just after sunset, or the morning sky just before sunrise. Yes, you'd be more at home in the morning sky. I think I shall call you Star. Do you mean that you think me pretty? asked Emily directly. Why, it hadn't occurred to me to wonder whether you were pretty or not. Do you think a star should be pretty? Emily reflected. No, she said finally. The word doesn't suit a star. Of course it doesn't. Stars are prismatic, palpitating, elusive. It is not often we find one made of flesh and blood. I think I'm ready to go now, said Emily, standing up. Well then, come along, Star, 
if you don't mind walking a bit slow. I'll take you back from the wilderness at least. I don't know that I'll venture to Withergrange tonight. I don't want Aunt Nancy to take the edge off you. And so you don't think me handsome. I didn't say so, cried Emily. Not in words, but I can read your thoughts, Star. It won't ever do to think anything you don't want me to know. The gods gave me that gift when they kept back everything else I wanted. You don't think me handsome, but you think me nice. Do you think you are pretty yourself? A little, since Aunt Nancy lets me wear my bang, said Emily frankly. Jarback Priest made a grimace. Don't call it by such a name. It's a worse name even than Bustle. Bangs and Bustles, they hurt me. It is a very ugly word. I never use it in my poetry, of course. Whereby Dean Priest discovered that Emily wrote poetry. He also discovered pretty nearly everything else about her in that charming walk back to Priest Pond in the fur-scented dusk with Tweed walking between them, his nose touching his master's hand softly every now and then, while the robins in the trees above them whistled blithely in the afterlight. With nine out of ten people, Emily was secretive and reserved, but Dean Priest was sealed of her tribe, and she divined it instantly. He had a right to the inner sanctuary, and she yielded it unquestioningly. She talked to him freely. Besides, she felt alive again. She felt the wonderful thrill of living again. After that dreadful space, when she had seemed to hang between life and death, she felt, as she wrote to her father afterwards, as if a little bird was singing in my heart. And oh, how good the green sod felt under her feet. She told him all about herself and her doings and beings. Only one thing she did not tell him, her worry over Isla's mother. That she could not speak of to anyone. Aunt Nancy need not have been frightened that she would carry tales to New Moon. I wrote a whole poem yesterday when it rained and I couldn't get out, she said. It began, I sit by the western window that looks on Malvern Bay. Am I not to hear the whole of it? asked Dean, who knew perfectly well that Emily was hoping that he would ask it. Emily delightedly repeated the whole poem. When she came to the two lines she liked best in it, perhaps in those wooded islands, that gem, the proud bay's breast, she looked up sideways at him to see if he admired them but he was walking with his eyes cast down and an absent expression on his face. She felt a little disappointed. Hmm, he said when she had finished. You're twelve, didn't you say? When you're ten years older, I shouldn't wonder, but let's not think of it. Father Cassidy told me to keep on, cried Emily. There was no need of it. You would keep on anyhow. You have the itch for writing born in you. It's quite incurable. What are you going to do with it? 
I think I shall be either a great poetess or a distinguished novelist, said Emily, reflectively. Having only to choose, remarked Dean dryly. Better be a novelist. I hear it pays better. What worries me about writing novels, confided Emily, is the love talk in them. I'm sure I'll never be able to write it. I've tried, she concluded candidly. And I can't think of anything to say. Don't worry about that. You'll learn it someday, said Dean. What do you find to do at the Grange besides writing poetry? Are you never lonesome with only those two old survivals? No, I enjoy my own company, said Emily gravely. You would. Stars are said to dwell apart, anyhow, sufficient unto themselves, ensphered in their own light. Do you really like Aunt Nancy? Yes, indeed. She is very kind to me. She doesn't make me wear sunbonnets, and she lets me go barefoot in the forenoons. But I have to wear my buttoned boots in the afternoons, and I hate buttoned boots. Naturally, you should be shod with sandals of moonshine, and wear a scarf of sea mist with a few fireflies caught in it over your hair. Star, you don't look like your father, but you suggest him in several ways. Do you look like your mother? I never saw her. All at once, Emily smiled demurely. A real sense of humour was born in her at that moment. Never again was she able to feel quite so unmixedly tragic over anything. No, she said. It's only my eyelashes and smile that are like my mother's. But I've got father's forehead and Grandma Star's hair and eyes, and Great Uncle George's nose, and Aunt Nancy's hands, and Cousin Susan's elbows, and Great Great Grandmother Murray's ankles, and Grandfather Murray's eyebrows. Dean Priest laughed. A rag bag, as we all are, he said, but your soul is your own, and fire new, I'll swear to that. Oh, I'm so glad I like you, said Emily impulsively. I would be hateful to think anyone I didn't like had saved my life. I don't mind your saving it a bit. That's good, because you see, your life belongs to me henceforth. Since I saved it, it's mine. Never forget that. Emily felt an odd sensation of rebellion. She didn't fancy the idea of her life belonging to anybody but herself, not even to anybody she liked as much as she liked Dean Priest. Dean watched her, saw it, and smiled his whimsical smile that always seemed to have so much more in it than mere smiling. That doesn't quite suit you. Ah, you see one pays a penalty when one reaches out for something beyond the ordinary. One pays for it in bondage of some kind or another. Take your wonderful Aster home and keep it as long as you can. It has cost you your freedom. He was laughing. He was only joking, of course, yet Emily felt as if a cobweb fetter had been flung around her 
Yielding to a sudden impulse, she flung the big aster on the ground and set her foot on it. Dean Priest looked on amusedly. His strange eyes were very kindly as he met hers. You rare thing, you vivid thing, you starry thing. We're going to be good friends. We are good friends. To see those descriptions you've written of Caroline and my venerable aunt in your Jimmy book, I feel sure they're delicious. Here's your path. Don't go roaming again so far from civilization. Good night, my star of the morning. He stood at the crossroad and watched her out of sight. What a child, he muttered. I'll never forget her eyes as she lay there on the edge of death, the dauntless little soul. And I've never seen a creature who seemed so full of sheer joy in existence. She is Douglas Starr's child. He never called me Jarback. He stooped and picked up the broken aster. Emily's heel had met it squarely, and it was badly crushed, but he put it away that night between the leaves of an old volume of Jane Eyre, where he had marked a verse. All glorious rose upon my sight, that child of shower and gleam.